0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are talking all about the spaces that you record in. We are talking all about studio design. Hello and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the oral history program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another fantastic episode of the Music History Project. Um, We, like Mike mentioned, we are going over uh, studio design and kind of listening to some of the unique designs that have happened over the years and also just some iconic ones that you will definitely, uh, you may not know the studio, but you'll definitely know the album that was recorded in that studio. (laughs) Um, And we're going to listen to some fantastic interviews today, including. Uh, Glenn Phoenix, uh, Guy Chavano, uh, George Augsburger, Jimmy Nutt, Sherry Klein, and Michael Marcourt. So some really fantastic uh, engineers and studio designers. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this one. Absolutely,
2: me too. And it, you know, you're reading that list, Ashley, and it just reminds me of what a true blessing it has been to interview and archive the stories of these guys because they're really all of them very well known, a few absolute icons in the business, and all of them having a very unique perspective on something that a lot of us music listeners don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to or know too much about, and that is as mike said it so well the space the space in which these songs are recorded the iconic songs and albums that we've been listening to our whole lives are recorded somewhere and a lot of thought has been put into that somewhere uh you know wall treatments uh reverb uh the carpets the the this the actual space itself, um, the, the distance vibe. between this place and that place, um, the the way the control monitors are in place, the control booth, all the gear and equipment. And as Ashley just said, I think one of the most important things, and the Record Planet uh, really put that on the map, and that is the vibe. You know, having a vibe that suits the musician, where they can come in and feel comfortable, uh, but yet... Uh, get what they want to get done, done. And uh, these guys that we're about to hear from today are all really experts at that, experts at creating that space. Uh, The first guy um, is Glenn Phoenix. And wow, what a joy it was to interview him um, for a lot of different reasons. Probably uh, my introduction to him really was through all of the folks that grew up under him Uh, employees of his have gone on to superstar status in the music industry, uh, one of which is uh, our good friend, Eric Zobler, um, so when Eric says he would love us to interview his mentor, uh, we didn't hesitate. And it was a great concept because, uh, Glenn had so much to offer, uh, back in 1971, he formed uh, Westlake audio. And of course they are very well known for their speaker systems, uh, loudspeakers, the, the BBSM series, uh, among others. And, uh, then he got into studio design, knowing how uh, to create a space with the right technology uh, has really been his, uh, his go-to for so many years. So it's a real privilege to uh, include him in today's podcast.
0: So let's jump right into the interview with Glenn Phoenix. He's going to be talking about studio design, studio management, um, some of the artists that worked in the studios that he worked on, um, and that all important vibe that we've been talking about. So here is Glenn Phoenix.
3: Our own project, Studio A, on Beverly Boulevard, which is where Michael ended up doing the thriller album. I guess that has to be right at the top. And uh... he designed it or. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Walked into the building when it was a post office, and you know when I left, it it, it was a studio with twenty some years of gold record, you know, experience and whatnot. So yeah, we, uh, took you know acquired the space and built it out, designed it, built it out, and uh, worked with Bruce and Quincy and a myriad of other people. Uh, so that would be that would be that. Uh, probably one of the more kinda interesting and unusual would have been the Caribou Ranch of course which with Jimmy Gershio from the group Chicago up in uh, Boulder, uh, not Boulder, Netherland, Colorado and uh, spent nine months of my life up there working on that project And uh, What
2: was unique about that?
3: Well it was built in a barn. Uh, it was a uh, dude ranch And uh, Jimmy's, you know, asked us to convert the barn into a, you know, world-class recording facility, which we did. Yeah, I I remember, um, you know, day after day after day doing the work, whatever. And and Jimmy kind of, uh, that was sort of his escape thing, where he kind of got away from the Hollywood thing, you know. And uh, so while we were up there, he was working on his only movie. Jimmy Gershiel made one movie. I don't know if you know the movie. It's a movie called Electro Glide in Blue, and it's a kind of a cult movie. If you, ha- if you don't know it and you haven't seen it, you, you, you might look it up and you know get yourself a copy of it, take a look at it. And like I say, I remember it because there was me every day in the control room, and I'd glance up from the, well, the reason I was in the control room for so long was the Ele- Olive Electrodynamic recording console, which was the world's first supposedly fully automated console. Which is another story, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I'd look up from the console through the glass, and then I'd see Jimmy standing in the studio, looking at this because there was a projection room over the control room, projecting the picture onto the full you know movie screen in the studio space, and I can remember because he worked on there's there's a scene in the movie where uh, Robert the, the star of the sh- of the movie was Robert. Robert Blake. Anyway, so, uh, but in the movie, Electroglide and Blue, Electroglide is a model of a Harley that the police usually use, or did back then, okay? So uh, that was where the name came from. And Robert Blake played this cop, you know? And uh, so he's following these two characters in the movie that are driving a pickup truck and the scene is out on a road in Arizona where it's one of those straight roads, and, you know, the, the panorama is just these beautiful red cliffs, you know, and and uh, so the camera is following him and uh, I won't tell you what actually happens because you should go get the movie and see it, but nevertheless, that scene of the camera following the pickup truck down that winding road every day, every day, he'd, he'd have the, uh, the dailies, you know, comped up and put on a counter-to-counter air thing, and somebody would drive to the Boulder-Stapleton Airport and pick it up counter-to-counter, and then drive up that winding mountain road and deliver them to, to Jimmy, and Jimmy would look at them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what, what's the story behind that council there?
3: Well, that was the Olive Electrodynamic Council, out of, and that was a company out of Montreal, Canada and uh Wayne Jones was the president, and uh it was very kind of futuristic, you know, and um, had a lot of great ideas, but it just never worked properly and ultimately it was taken out and replaced by i forget what what went in there but uh, so that that was that, and that that just shows, and of course, I'm sure you probably know a little bit from you know being in the business or whatever, that the road to, let's say, a current, you know, digi-design controller console with everything automated. And, you know, nowadays, it's pretty easy to recall everything and to kind of do things. But, you know, in the early days of getting that stuff to happen, and there was a lot, of, a lot of oopsies. I'd like to say that was the last big console food bar that I lived through, but it wasn't.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned some of the folks that you worked with. One of, I, I remember talking to Eric about was uh, Bruce Wedeen.
3: Yes, of, uh, of course, you know, so there at 6311 Wilshire Boulevard, we had built a showroom, okay, that was a state-of-the-art showroom. But we invested so much money in this, in the showroom <laughs> was that we, we ended up you know, having to try and do some uh, g- revenue generation. So after the close of the normal business sales day, we'd book sessions from like 9 o'clock at night till 9 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so word got around because it was a pretty nice room. In fact, uh, you know, we, we, we were API's first outside of the factory representative. And uh, so we had one of the first big frame APIs in there. And uh, so we lived through a little bit there. The whole automation system thing was hit and miss. But the basics of the console signal flow and sound were pretty good. They sort of had that part together right from the start. And, of course, uh, Saul Walker was one of the instrumental parties involved in that. And I don't know if you're aware but Saul died about a year and a half ago. I
2: got to interview him, which was a delight, yeah, okay. pioneering guy for sure. Right,
3: right, right. And of course, API has been one of the surviving names in our business that survived the digitization of, <laughs> of the world and uh whatnot. uh so so anyway just you know one day you know i don't even remember how it come about because it's so long ago but you know all of a sudden you know there's bruce and quincy in the mix room you know working on whatever whatever project that they were working on and uh, and it wasn't then too long after that that you know lo and behold they show up with michael jackson and uh so that was the start of a long relationship there mm. At uh, both uh, mix room at sixty two eleven Wilshire, and then later at Beverly Boulevard, and then later at uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, where they did the Bad album.
2: You know, there's so much, so many talk, um, almost sort of a mystic level of each room having its own vibe and its, you know, mystic powers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we had a great interview with uh, David Gold at the Gold Star, and you know his secret potion that he wouldn't tell anybody about, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that certainly exists in, in uh, the studio system. What, what are your thoughts about, about what goes into a, a design?
3: Well, uh, in big rooms, it's pretty complex. You know, you have power systems, power distribution, you've got neighbors, you've got acoustical isolation, you know, it really it's like, okay. Uh, I, I jokingly I have a little saying called "good sound." It's not rocket science, but it's close. And uh, so there's the known factors, which of course, as a studio designer and builder, you try to take them into account and and, and use them to your advantage you know, or incorporate them into into the system to produce good results. But then there always is exactly what you said. Then there's the vibe. There's the, and the vibe can be everything from you go in and you see the gold record on the wall and that starts the vibe, right? If you go in a room and, you know, there's a gold record from Michael Jackson, it's hard not to be sort of enthused about it. And enthusiasm can go a long way to motivate, you know, an artist or production team to work on it. So uh, on a science level, I didn't have my PE epiphany until Y2K. So, before that period of time, I, you know, did, was I grounded in good uh, design characteristics? Sure. I had a lot of technical chops and attributes and understanding about ground systems and, you know, all the kind of things that supposedly make it good, but I didn't know about PE distortion. And I, I, I wish that I had because there was some, there was an amount of effort in different studios because, you know, we not only did our own studios, but we built many studios for other people around the country and around the world. Um, so there's, there, there's that as kind of another link there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the, yeah, the, and the vibes also comes from studio management. Um, I kind of lived through that and saw that a little bit, and our personality, you know, in the case of Westlake, you know, it was my personality of how I ran things. And uh, I saw pretty quickly on, and I I think I even, my first exposure to that part of the business was working with Wally Hyder. I don't know if you know the name, but Wally was a pioneer in, in Hollywood. And uh, he, he mainly, uh, well, he started out as doing remotes where he actually was a recording engineer. And so he was quite skilled at that. And, uh, but uh, Wally would move heaven and earth to appease his clients, to get his clients what they needed. And he also learned that once you get done with your job, you get out of the way. You know, it's not your gig. I saw a lot of of studio people and and managers in the business that, to me, didn't get that aspect of it. There are some people that can play that kind of active role where, you know, maybe a studio guy, owner, manager, you know, group comes in or whatever, and next thing you know, he's almost producing or managing. But uh, for myself, having come from the background of 3M, I kind of saw it more on a corporate basis, which was you know, the corporation's there to serve the requirements of the customer and, and be support and not be involved with the production. So um, there's a part of the studio business which uh, is best served more like a, like a Hilton hotel where you, know, you provide the facilities and you're always there. You always know here in the hotel that the management's there to back you up or help you out with whatever your issues are. But, you know, they're not coming in here and telling you that, you know, turn up the microphone game. (laughs) Good point,
2: yeah, very true.
3: So that that vibe uh, is an important aspect, that attitude about it. And uh, I think one of the reasons that Bruce and Quincy came to Westlake and stayed for as many years as they did and were as content was that, you know... Pretty much, you know, my attitude was, you know, uh, y- yes, they knew who I was, and I'd go in, sh- shake hands, and but I'd be backing it up. They knew that when when they'd leave, we'd be in there at three in the morning working on whatever the issues were, and taking care of that and whatnot, and uh, you know, offering only an input from the recording side if if it was asked of us, you know, because uh, so. Um, that's, you know, so there's the vibe aspect of it, and uh, there, are, there, were, there are some people that, you know, create studio environments that are fully involved in it. Uh, you know, one of our customers was Frank Sapa, and Frank had his own studio in his home, and, uh, you know, he was just the opposite, of course. Everything that was done in his studio, he, he put an input into it, and, uh, of course, most of it was his own stuff, but he, he worked on a few outside projects, or his, his studio did.
0: So once again, that was Glenn Phoenix. And I just wanted to mention real quick that we are talking about a lot of great interviews that we have in the collection in this podcast today. But there are even more that we Mm. just don't have time to talk about. So if you are super interested in studio design, you can head over to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org slash library, head over to our advanced search, and you can search through tags. And one of our tags is studio design. And if you click on that tag, it'll show you everyone associated with studio design. Um, and you can just go down that rabbit hole. And it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun, but be careful. You might be there for a while. <laughs>
1: Just carve out also, a couple hours, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and such great perspective. There's so many that um, that we just can't get to on today's podcast, but uh, maybe we'll do a part two or another aspect of uh, studio design in the future. This is more of a, a, a sort of a general overview, and it's really neat to have so many different aspects. For example, uh, Guy Chabonneau is our uh, next interviewee that we'd like to play a segment for. Uh, for you and his is all about a um, a studio on wheels. He created <laughs> La Mobile, which is a, a studio in a truck that uh, he has pulled up behind venue after venue for the last forty plus years and recorded just about everybody you can name. <laughs> um, and about 50 people that you never heard of, but would love to hear. Um, He just has a great unique way of creating recordings uh, of live performances with this uh, remote truck. And it's just absolutely incredible. And I'm just so proud to have this opportunity to introduce him and his uh, career to those who have never heard of his name, but certainly have heard his work for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely uh, quite the unique uh, recording studio. And uh, you could just tell the passion uh, that he has on that. And it's uh, fantastic. So we're going to get into uh, Guy's interview now. He's going to be talking mostly about kind of the beginnings of where Leymobile came from and kind of how it progressed
4: and a little bit of some of the challenges that he's experienced over the years. The way I started with the truck, I met Bruno Strasser from Studer. In Montreal, showing a Studer machine. That's before I built a truck. And when I saw a Studer machine, it was a four-track. I, I need that machine, and that's one machine we used to do the recording within these fifty shows. And the two-track machine. And uh, before I built a truck, I went to Toronto at Studer, and he took me to a son interchange who was Terry Brown, Rush producer, and I saw the first, uh, the first Studer 24 track. I have to have one. And that's the way I started. I bought a machine. I didn't have the money for all the, the electronic. Bruno sent me 16 electronic, but one per mount. And I did. I have to have a Neve. And I sold the store and got a little Neve. And actually, uh, temporarily, I used a task Tascam plug to that Studer machine for maybe a couple of months. And then I bought that Neve, and I basically wired the Neve in the truck behind an hotel in Toronto. And my first project with the Neve and the Studer at that time was with Terry Brown doing George at, at, uh, George at Mo, uh, George, no, Mo Kaufman at George. It was a little club. It was a jazz Me and Terry, and that's where I ended up with Terry Brown to work more work with him and later on Rush and stuff like that.
2: How did you hear about the Neve?
4: When I went to the studio and I saw the Neve console. And I don't know. I just that's the type of console I need. It was not a big one. I bought a little twenty-four channel with plenty of channel, <laughs> not today. And uh, it was a little Neve with ten seventy-three. And I just look at it, and I felt that was a console I need to have, you know. And uh, when I rebuild in, in seventy-three, my first truck. That's what I have inside. And when I decide to to build the mobile and make a bigger truck in seventy-six, basically. And uh, I bought the knife I have, the 8058. Who temporarily was installed in the small truck by the time I was building my larger truck. And then I remember, put both trucks together, move the console, move the Studer, you know, and get two studers. And uh, that's the way Le Mobile came up. And we changed the name from, f- because I was starting to work with the English-Canadian market as well. What that mean, what that mean? Well, not really nothing, and I figure out uh, le Studio Moronite, Andre Perry, as in the studio at that time, and studio, French and English, and mobile. I said, I could call that le mobile, le mobile in French, you know, and it's the same spelling, and that's when we end up to use the name le mobile. And we kind of worked together on some of the projects where I was doing recording and they were mixing at le studio, and, you know, that's kind of like, ah, good name, <laughs> you know. That's how I built the first track. And I now the next step, the U.S.C. was for CBC in 78, I think. I came to do a recording in New York City. And I have no idea, crossing the border and stuff. I'm coming in for CBC, you know, driving the truck. And we did the recording. And I called Bruno, actually, at Studer. He was at that time still in Toronto, I think. We're not sure he was in Nashville or maybe Nashville. And I said, the biggest producer in the state. It's like, it's, I think Phil Rebellion is one big one. Yeah, yeah, I said, where Phil works? In our studio. Yeah. I looked for the number. I called them, and I said, I'm from Montreal. I just did a recording in New York at the Carnegie Hall, and I'd like to visit your studio. Drove the truck up front, parked up front of the studio. I walked in, present myself. and said, I'm with the remote truck. It's parked outside. What do you have? I have an and Studer machine. Huh? So they came and see the truck, and they saw a pair of 800 Studer. They didn't have 800. They were they were the first to have the pre-serie machine, basically. Mm-hmm. And I never saw in our studio. I drove back to Montreal. I think maybe a couple weeks after, a month after, I got Phil's office called me and said, could you come in Cleveland for one trick pony, Paul Simon? Okay. <laughs> My idea at that time when I built a truck was also to eventually work in the state because I felt a invitation to work only in Montreal or the Canadian English market. So I basically, um, okay, drove the truck, went to pony, and back in Montreal, and said, now it's time to put a diesel under the truck, because I, when I built that box, I didn't want to spend the money on the tractor, an $80,000 tractor for the time. I wanted to just put a nice gas engine truck, but I actually, is uh, uh, that after one? Yeah, after one three pony, I drove all the way to LA, to do a show with the, the, the gas truck. 150 mile refuel the truck, or 150 mile refuel the truck. <laughs> and uh, it was time for the diesel. So I rebuilt uh, in 1979. I got the diesel rebuilt with the diesel. I basically uh, rebuilt the truck and be ready for the state. I, I, I asked what they call it. I form a company in the United States. Actually, uh, one of the person working for Phils I uh, represent Le Mobile, and we, I form a company and asked what they called an intercompany visa. And I got all my information and journey called me. So, okay, I could do journey. I came in the state, do journey, and go in Montreal to do more day journey. And I came back and immigration didn't want to let me in. <laughs> I spent a year fighting with them. And finally I got the paperwork. I didn't receive all the information. It was all in process approved, but the little cart was missing. And they played with me for a year. Lucky I have CBC in Montreal in the Jazz Festival and a couple other clients to survive. But it was a little rough time. The Canadian government was helping company and the interest rate was 21%. That's the way to help at that time. It was like, today people pay 4%. They think it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so I finally got the... the paper and got Peter Frampton in an A&M record to do a record with Peter and from then Toto and and Pat Minotaur and that was back and forth between the United. Actually, I got a management in New York at that time, too, till 84. And in 84, I said, you know, West Coast will be the place. So I, I I don't know if I ever saw you, if, uh, show you an interview for MTV and uh, doing the I have to look at that video I should send you the the link and I listened to myself talking there Wow I have, my English was better than now because I was not thinking and I was really like that you know this is and they asked, we were recording in a big. Um, how, um, it was uh, the playground or whatever in Atlanta, one of uh, a huge building, and you know. And I did in Kansas, and they asked me. We look at different building, and I said, "Well, oh, this one's great. It has a stage, a lot of room." And we did a record, and MTV came up, and it was the beginning of MTV interview, and it was interesting to see. That's all I was. I was just you know, in a sense, never thinking too much of what happened. Just this is what I have to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the way I start.
2: It's crazy. So tell me a little bit about um, the progression of the, the mobile um, outfits. Were you one of the first to be doing that?
4: No, no, no. Uh, in Canada, he has a, an actron from Toronto, was Emilio Iris, was involved. But this truck kind of disappeared. It came in a state and kind of disappeared and resurfaced, but it was not really... A truck. And I remember in the beginning in 73, so when I built the first one, is a truck from Boston used to come to do French Canadian artist life. Kill the studio there. It's we're going to use. I remember too. Where's that guy? Where that guy came from with a Neve and a Studer in the truck? They, you know, because I only have one machine at that time, you know, an A eighty, the big large one, with seventeen electronics, sixteen tracket block and twenty four tracket block, one electronic at the time. <laughs> Bruno used to sell me. And uh, you know, they that's in in Canada I always said yes probably. In the state they have record plant and it was you know, available at that time and some other truck here in the West Coast as well, hydro truck. But I never look at these trucks. I have no idea. I except after then, I moved here, I ended up to the record plant, got sold to design effects, and I saw the truck. In 70, in 80, whatever, the, the Live Aid concert in 80-something, I was doing one stage in New York, and uh, record plant New York, or David Hewitt at that time, well, with his black truck, and the mine, and then we said, "Who built the first black truck?" I was the first black truck. David Thingy is the first black truck, and me as a car, I'm a Corvette person, I and mean, he was a Porsche person. That's saying, you know, we always. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he has an EPI, I have an Eve, you know. But we were uh, that. That's kind of like I look at the other truck, but I never look to see how they do or what they do. I did what I feel should be done, you know. And Lumobile from that time as. I don't know if we call that evaluate but keep with the time but one thing never changes: is the neve and instead to have we start when i bought that neve was 28 input and then it goes to 32 and then we add more preamp and now i have close to 100 preamp in the truck we went from 20 foot track to renting some suny digital then i was not really Please with the sound, 15 IPS, the old BSR was really for me a great way to record live shows, and, and all kind of music, you know, you could leave the dynamic and it was sounding great. I always want tape machine to sound like the console. I don't want tape machine changing the sound, you know. And I uh felt then the, the studer was the dog was the great way, till I did a Cirque du Soleil, and again Bruno Strasser, my friend, we're gonna loan you a studer, D A twenty-seven. And I used the machine to do a select because we didn't need more track. And it's like, oh, I could live with that machine. But actually, I have to buy two of them. And I still have them. They're worth nothing but the beautiful machine. And I still turned it on time to time just to make sure the, a little bit of electri- electricity, electrons fly through. And the only thing we could use is to transfer a dash tape to a proto-session now. You know, And... As a uh, progression, we had more channels and stuff. Same thing. We did have a smaller Pro Tool to edit to fix things because that was slowly getting that way. And one point, I said, I'm going to build a Pro Tool in the truck." 48-track track Pro Tool. 48-track was plenty of track. Not today. And uh, we, uh, AB, I remember comparing the Studer Ditch machine and the, the, the Pro Tool with their own converter, and it was like, oh, uh, you know, the neve has such a sound with dimension that I felt it would take, it sounded good, low-end is there, high-end is there, but it was a glass up front. It was like something. And that may be my audiophile side of me, you know, kind of like hear certain thing like that.
2: I wonder if we could talk about some of your favorite memories
4: uh going down the, going down the catskill in the snow and uh, and the truck slide like that is that favorite memory that's one of my memory uh being uh, returned in canada from the immigration uh, that's another memory um i don't know special memory you know i could tell you some of the artists i did like to record over the year uh, because I felt they were actually artists. You could feel that the audience was their priority. They're not there, just look at me, I'm nice, and I'm I'm rich, and I'm good. You know, it was they want to please the audience. And when you feel that at the end of a sn- snake in the truck, you could feel that the artist really, that's special. And uh, it could happen, all kind of music, you know. And uh, I could name you certain artists, but I don't know if it's fair. It could be uh, an unknown artist at all. I could, uh, you know, you they play one song and it's like, this is cool, this is great. You could feel that, you know. Uh, I have obviously some project. You sometimes come to your mind, and it's not because of the name of the 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 artist. It just it was a nice project. But what didn't make the nice project? It was also the production was really well organized. They treat you well. They care about you. You care about them. You know. You want the best. They want the best. You know. That's make the project so much better than we don't care. You know. That's why it's many of them over the year where it was great to meet nice people. I don't really necessarily connect. I think over the year I have two artists and I could talk like friends. We, over the year we connect. That's about it. Known artists, you know. The rest, I they know I'm there. I do my best. I'm not there to socialize with them. That's another thing I see sometimes have yeah, these person who come and they want to be in the picture with the artist, you know, they want to be, I'm in my truck, (laughs) I do the music, you know. They know I'm there, that's how they count, you know.
2: So what have been some of the challenges of of your career, do you think? And has that changed? Are these challenges now the same as the challenges when you
4: started? No, they, they, I don't know if it changed. You know, challenge was to cross this border, that's definitely, it took a lot of energy to me, uh, from me to to figure out how to do that, you know. It didn't stop me. Uh, my concept of what I want to do in the future for Lumobile, it's a challenge. I don't know if I'm going to succeed, but I don't want to think about it, I'll make it happen, you know. Uh, technically. It's now uh, yes and no. You know you. Uh, I think now I have more challenge than I used to have before because uh, before you used to go and record a show at the LA Forum, you park 150 foot away of the stage, and it was Genesis on stage, you know, and they you, you are arriving and you know where to park and they are expecting you and you know today it's so much through video you park. For, for the, video. the audio is always a poor child in the way of video. You park further, uh, 2,000 feet away. That's why we have now a system, MADI to the truck. We interface. We did a trick system where the digital to analog and the Neve still thing, it's a copper cable because I have a little trick circuitry came to my mind and I talked to one of my old tech in Canada to design it. And uh, it worked great. Now the challenge is to get these preamp remote, make them logical. Because most of the new equipment, it could do everything. But it's not always logical. It does too much. Too much of things you don't need. Because they heard the designer don't really use them. But oh, this guy wants this one. I'm going to put everything. And then you want to just do something simple. Could I have three set of preamp together? Could I just hit save? Save everything as one. No. <laughs> you know. But they give you a ton of other options. You absolutely do no need, you know. That's in, that's challenging to try uh, to push on these company to, uh, to improve and make it simple. Uh, because I think simplicity sometimes is much better. Uh, the challenge now is you arrive to the gig and where we park. <laughs> and you, you don't know, you know, they don't know either. So it's a little, it's a more last minute also. It's been, uh, it, it's, that's more challenging to me than uh, before, but and I remember we used to drive much more across country, it was, uh, that's, that's one of the challenges now, the cost of traveling, the permit, the, all these things with a truck, it's crazy. It's okay if you have a big transport company, but the, for me, I have all the same role than if I have 100 truck, and that's tough. I'm really glad when I don't have to, to deal with that. If I build a motor home, don't have to deal with that. And it won't be big. It'd be a nice little Le Mobile quality. And Jan, my son, could deal with it. And I'm still going to go and record of The show would be great, you know, in a digital world. But approaching a lot of recording the same way I used to do with the you know. And then maybe bring him back in the truck when and we can mix in Le Mobile. <laughs>
2: Okay, that was uh, Guy Chabonneau and uh, talking about uh, his LaMobile on wheels. <laughs> Such a great on idea. It's great, <laughs> great concept. You know, every once in a while, I'll see old pictures of like um, RCA's big remote truck behind Graceland, you know, (laughs) recording Elvis or something like that. And I, I think what a long way we've come from (laughs) uh, them basically just mounting things in the truck and hoping that it works when they get there, as opposed to Gee's approach, which is designing specific equipment to fit in every little nook and cranny to take full advantage. Uh, Because, you know, among the many things uh, that you have to consider is the weight you know, you're lugging this thing all over the place and it's got to be able to be uh, movable um, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't want to pump up the tires every five miles. So every <laughs> little thing goes into that thought process. So hats off to Gee and all of those that work on that uh, Mobile because it's a really great uh, inspiration to so many people. Um, speaking of inspiration, uh, the next two folks that we're going to be talking uh, about and hearing from them in their interviews uh, is Sherry Klein, who is really well known for a re-recording mixer uh, in Los Angeles, in particular. Uh, her her um, company is Smartport uh, Post Sound, and uh, really gained a great reputation at the um, Larrabee Studios there in Los Angeles. Just an amazing artist when it comes to sound. And um, she has a perspective on the studio design, which I think is really great. Uh, But before that, we have a uh, musician turned uh, studio designer and recording engineer, and that is uh, Michael Marcourt, who um, in the 80s toured with flock of seagulls as the drummer, which is really cool for people (laughs) as old as me who (laughs) remembers how awesome that band was. Um, And now he actually has a, a band that has won all kinds of awards Dozens of albums. It's called a bad think, and the name I think was given to him by his daughter, which is kind of a funny story. Um, but he has designed studios in Florida and Los Angeles, uh, among them the uh, the Windmark that was in uh, that is in Santa Monica. He started that in 1983, and the list of artists and engineers. Uh, That have gone through those doors is really rather remarkable. So uh, I'm really excited that we're going to get their two perspectives on this concept of today's podcast and that studio design.
0: And one little note about both of these interviews, they were actually both captured in the midst of this pandemic that we're living through. So they are both virtual interviews captured um, just through video call. And it's, it's great that we were able to do this because you know, I'm not sure we were able to capture these interviews if we weren't doing virtual mm. uh, interviews. So really happy we were able to get both of these. And uh, Sherry's interview is actually posted in its full entirety on the Nam website. So if you like what you hear from her, be sure to check that out for even more from her interview. So here is Michael Marquardt and Sherry Klein.
2: I also should ask you where you got the wood for your studio
5: oh yeah 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 it's it all came it was all reclaimed from the hollywood bowl and uh the uh the um studio architect um that that did winmark and santa monica uh did this and he goes well what do you think about having you know hollywood bowl music they're redoing everything and they're pulling everything out what do you think about that i go are you kidding me what a fantastic idea just think about it you know all the 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 the, that wood has sucked up Bing Crosby and you know Jimi Hendrix and and every every choir and you know for seventy years all sucked into the wood in this place can't go wrong there and it's the the whole thing is built out of it the deck outside that you know you can't see and there's just I have the small control room and I have a like a tracking room in there but it's all it's um, it actually won best um, uh, studio design, a uh, uh, tech award uh, when it was done, and I was up against you know this two hundred million dollar facility in China, the post facility in China, and and uh, and, my, and this little room wins. Well, let's face it, I mean the the wood got it the win. I mean it's nice. <laughs> you know it it's, it had nothing to do with it with with the budget, but um, um, yeah, I mean that was a a, a nice. Because now, you know, Fender did you know limited run of um, um, Esquires called uh, front row. And um they were kind enough to make me one of those. And you know, Peter had uh was talking with Fender and he goes, Man, there's a guy in LA that needs one of these guitars. So he explains to them, you know, what's in here and, and they go, Well, they're all sold. How do they make many? And so he introduced me to him and and I talked to him. He goes, Well, let, let let me see, let me see. So he comes back and he goes, Yeah, we'll make you one. So um, so I have one of those guys, too, so it so um, adds to the decor in here as well.
2: And uh, I forgot to ask you earlier. Um, when was uh, Windmark developed? When did you open
5: that? Uh, I' have a shovel somewhere that, that has the date that we broke ground. I think it was 83. Okay, something like that. Yeah. And um and had it for yeah, 10 years. I think before the Neptunes bought it.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. And what what was the board in there again? You told uh, me there it.
5: was two SSLs. There was a 4056 in the A room and that had um A20 set at an A27 uh a, a 3024 sony dash machine and and i had a Mits 32 in there too and it had all this stuff locked together with a adam smith synchronizer and then the b room had a a 4040e which was 32 channels and it had a sony two-inch machine apr 24 i think was a model number of that and that was a smaller room and um and uh, that's, that's where Serban was, was stationed, in that, in that smaller room. And I had a little kind of a mastering room that had a, um, you know, it was really just a storage room turned into a mastering room. We didn't, didn't do much mastering, but, um, um, but it, was, um, it was efficient, and it had the top gear. It had the best gear you could get.
6: I became part of the staff of this little studio called Hub Studios. It was a 16-track studio um don richardson and john miller who i've been in touch with even to this day were the mentors of life i mean both of them they built most of john miller built everything and don richardson had run everything he used to work for um wgbh there and stuff and still works for a lot of radio stations he's up in toronto uh john miller is still in boston and i mean the pictures of I recently contacted them for some information and pictures of some of the old gear that we used to work on. I mean, we did uncanny things. I mean, I helped them build the place from the ground up. We built a drum, booth. we built a studio, a a studio that was a shell within a shell that sank. Um, We realized it sank in the first six months. We built a drum booth that sank all of a sudden a truck went by and we're like, rumble. And we're, we looked at each other and it was very late at night. And we were very stoned and we we're blasting Stevie wonder through the speakers. And we looked at each other and went, did you feel that? Yeah. Did you feel that? Did you hear that? Did you? We sank. Okay. We had, uh, we used Hammond. I always tell the story. We, we used Hammond Springs uh, that was underneath the console with fiberglass pieces that we'd rearranged to cut decay time we had a digital delay our digital delay was a neumann u87 bi-directional downstairs in the basement facing the cement and bouncing off to different speakers and then we'd go down there and move them um john built a counter on the 16 track machine that was a bicycle chain with a numerical counter that worked until it didn't (laughs) but it was an amazing time and i learned so much i learned how to wire um there was like Originally, when we were building, there was like a a 10-inch crawl crawl space up above, and I was the smallest person. And so in 100-degree weather in Boston, Massachusetts, I was up there with, you know, like a mask in the fiberglass doing all the soldering because John didn't like messy wires, and so we hung them from the ceiling with phono plugs, and you plugged them in. And we had them coming out of the wall, which was a great idea, except for when one broke. And the only place you could access the connection was upstairs between crawl space, me. So I learned a tremendous amount and I was there for a bunch of years. I mean, from like 73, I think until 76 or so. And I worked, I I did a lot of work with a lot of the major Boston players and people that came through town. There's also, I remember we went to a studio and a lot of people just kind of looked at me pretty weird. Like, you know, who's this, who's this girl, you know, and all that, but I did have impeccable ears at the time.
1: All right. So that was uh Michael Morcourt and Sherry Klein. And I have to say Sherry Klein has such a fantastic interview. If you guys get a chance, definitely go check out her full interview. Her career is just um Kind of, it's pretty amazing. She was one of those like, kind of almost Forrest Gump like things where she just was like in the right place at the right time for so many awesome experiences in her life. So definitely enjoyed being a part of that interview with you, Dan, and I definitely recommend that. So yeah, absolutely.
2: Oh my goodness. You're absolutely right. You remind me of the fact that we're just talking about her childhood and her early experiences with music. And it turns out that she went to Woodstock, she hung out in the music store and this woman came over to hand her new guitar named Joni Mitchell. I mean, just one amazing <laughs> yeah. Gump moment after another. Absolutely. And what an endearing person just it's uh, it is a, a great interview. Very well said. And I hope people can go and check that out. Um, it's, fabulous so uh, as we continue with our uh, studio design podcast uh, up next is a very well-known name in the circle of studio design and that's george osperger george has written Dozens of articles. He has given presentations to university students and um, the AES white papers going back to the 1970s. Um, And none of this sort of even comes close to really describing his impact. Uh, Just a, a wealth of knowledge and a great contributor to studio design and just the concept of what it means to put things together to create a certain sign sound and to utilize things to their most potential. For example, microphone placement isn't just put it here, put it over there. It, there's calculations behind it, according to George, and a real sort of scientific look at how to create the best sound for what you're trying to produce, and uh, really incredible. His career really started when he was hired by JBL back in 1958. (laughs) He became one of the product managers of the professional development of that company back in the 1960s. And then in 1970, he formed um, Perception Inc., which is sort of his own uh, company as a freelancer, but really gained a lot of uh, reputation for going into pre-existing studios and redesigning them to update them with current technology and maybe creating something different if they're switching a style of music. So for example, he was in the big room as we lovingly call the Capitol building uh, studio B uh, in Los Angeles and really worked that to be the orchestration room that uh, Al Schmidt and so many other engineers made very famous. He also did a lot of design for uh, the various uh, Disney studios in the Los Angeles area as well. Just an incredible career and an incredible guy. And um, really, uh, I think that if if Nam was going to be serious about having an oral history to include studio design, you gotta have George. So (laughs) I'm really proud that we have
7: George. So here he is from his uh, Nam oral history interview. My company is strictly consulting, yes. Um, As I said, uh, I'd already worked with people in the recording industry, had a fair understanding of what they were doing, and uh, just about that same time when, when I left, uh, I was already friends with Tom Hindley, who was the very first studio designer that designed studios for musicians rather than engineers. And there was a total revolution in recording studio design at, at exactly the same time. And so the very first studios for record plant uh, were designed by Hidley. and they were psychedelic studios. They were designed to make rock and roll musicians feel comfortable, give them the things they wanted to do, uh, be able to record at extremely high levels, uh, all these things that uh, the labels were totally unfamiliar with.
2: What an interesting approach.
7: Yeah, so the first uh, major studio that I designed was actually a gradual redo of one of Hidley's studios. And it had been bought uh, by Cherokee. And the old Cherokee studios on North Horf- and North Fairfax. Then uh, we made a few changes, added some rooms, And I did all the work for uh, for Cherokee, and just recently, uh, after Cherokee was sold, Bruce Robb, one of the original owners, kept the famous console, uh, restored it, and has now opened Cherokee West as his own studio. And of course I worked with Bruce on that. That's also my design.
2: Very interesting. So George, I'm kind of curious, when you uh, left JVL to start your consulting company, was your goal to just do design uh, for studios or were you also hoping to do product development still?
7: Uh, Very little product development. I I developed um, studio monitor designs. But that was part of the services I offered, and it still is. Uh, I've never done a commercial product on my own that I sold. It's always custom designs for specific studios. But um, there was a need for a very high power monitor, which the commercial uh, companies had not done. And the first one of those I did, I was still with JBL. Uh, Then I did a few for studio clients um, and gradually refined those, but they all used commercial products with the exception of the high-frequency horn, uh, which I designed my own horn a couple of dozen years ago, and that stayed pretty much with the designs that I've done, but not all.
2: Okay, another big topic, but hopefully it won't uh, won't scare you too much. I'd love your uh, general explanation of the main components for uh, studio acoustic design.
7: Um, actually, they don't vary uh, don't vary that much. Hmm. Uh, there was a there was a period again that went through the 70s up through the turn of the century. And what actually happened was, a, um, again, a sort of a convergence of two elements. When stereophonic recording first came in commercially, which was right around 1956, 58, 60, all of the studio designers and engineers assumed that they would now use stereo to capture the three-dimensional quality of a jazz trio or small group or an orchestra or whatever. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, demonstrations had already been done um, of capturing larger groups, full symphony orchestras with three-channel recording. Uh, to achieve uh, almost a a perfect semblance of the original. That started out, of course, with Leopold Stokowski and the Philadelphia Orchestra. But what actually happened in the pop music thing was uh, rock and roll, and high-powered amplified instruments, and multi-track recording, where you recorded individual tracks and did all the combining in the final mix. And so all of these wonderful Volkman studios that were designed to be able to preserve natural acoustics and still enable you to record the individual instruments in three or four tracks uh, became essentially useless. And people wanted much dryer studios with a lot of individual uh, isolation booths in one thing or another. Uh, then uh, two other things happened. Uh, one was that, um, again, this was in the early 70s, Dave Hassinger came up with this super dry, super punchy drum sound. you know. Totally dead, no reverb, nothing, dunk, 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 but it had, you know, and that's what everybody wanted. Then about ten years later the new generation of young guys came in they said, oh no, we like the sound of a drum in a totally live room and that turned uh, the acoustics of a recording space completely around just in a very short time. So that was one thing that actually did change. At the same time there were a bunch of theories in mixed-down-room design. And I've gone over this several times in print and one thing another. But over the years those gradually merged because uh, and this to me is a very interesting phenomenon. The surround sound format has never caught on in the pop music industry, never. And after a brief, uh, a very brief flutter with quad, and then another very brief flutter with 5.1, 5.1 did become a standard for preliminary film mixing and production uh, mixing, but gradually, gradually, maybe ten years, the whole pop music industry converged back. Two-channel recording is the standard. Everything else is an offshoot of the basic two-channel mix. And that is still true. Uh, Home theaters and Dolby Atmos and all the rest of it notwithstanding. So designing a really good room for two-channel mixing is different than a 5.1 room. and uh, You can use them interchangeably, but if if the client is going to be working primarily in one format, that does dictate acoustics to some degree. But beyond that, um, you have a lot of leeway in the live room. Depends on what the client wants, um, how he works. Uh, I remember years and years ago, a very interesting session, I had a group of Japanese clients in town and we went out to a new studio that was being under construction, uh, a well-known West Coast studio designer and builder. And the Japanese were very interested, he had a nice large contemporary control room and a little... Odd-shaped room, maybe seven by ten, off the control room. And the Japanese asked, "Ah, what this room going to be used for?" He said, "I don't know. I don't know what it sounds like yet. When I know what it sounds like, I'll decide what to use it for." It's <laughs> <laughs> a
2: good answer. <laughs> so, what what to you is more satisfying? Uh, maybe that's the wrong word. More. Um, interesting for you is it to redesign the pre-existing room or to start from scratch
7: oh no you you always like to re- start from scratch uh, when you're redesigning an existing room unless you you know really tearing it down um, you're, you you don't want to unless the client asks for it, you you, you want to preserve uh, the good qualities that the previous designer has done, but you're, you're trying to upgrade it to present requirements in one thing or another. So it's always more interesting, I think, to start from scratch. On the other hand, if you say uh, is it better to start with the ground up or to work within an existing space, there it's a toss-up. Uh, if the space is congenial, um, it may actually be easier to work within an existing space.
2: You know, one thing, uh, the final thing I was hoping to, to cover with you, if you wouldn't mind regaling us with some of uh, um, some of your projects that you've done with musicians, since so many of them come to the NAMM show, I wonder what that's like for you.
7: Um, the musicians? Obviously, will want a recording space that's good for whatever they're they're working in. Okay. And the idea of working at home um, actually goes way back. It it started becoming fairly serious back in the 80s. Uh, that early. Um, usually. I've done occasionally a, a room for a drummer, and and there, yes, he would he would like to work in a fairly live room. On the other hand, as a matter of fact, I just finished one recently. If he also wants to use the room for mixing, then you 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 have to find a good balance between something that's not too live to get a good mix room and still will give him some room sound for his drums. Okay, Maybe you introduce some drapes or variable acoustics or something. Um, I've had one or two clients that actually did want very dead rooms. A good example of that uh, is a room that's going to be used primarily for, for vocals or overdubs um production studios, commercial overdub studios are are in most cases totally dead. In my experience, you need just enough room sound that the uh, that the talent does not feel like they're in a void. They hear a little bit of uh, their own sound coming back. So it, it can vary substantially, but um, Trying to get adequate low-frequency control is the most difficult. The rest can pretty much take care of itself. You can play around later. Uh, trying to design a room, a mixed room, that will meet Dolby or THX standards, the big problem is always getting enough low-frequency control. and. Uh, Going back to your question, uh, the, I'm, I'm trying to think again. Uh, guitarists, string players will want, again, relatively live room acoustics. Uh, vocalists, usually a pretty dead room. Um, drummers, these days, usually a fairly live room. But again, it's, it's um, for the guy working at home, usually he wants to be able to do some mixing as well. And so again, it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Or um, if he has enough space and you have a couple rooms, yeah, uh, I've done a number of studios for producers and film composers. And they will have maybe two, a suite of two or three rooms. Good mix room. On a very live recording room, and a very dead recording room. And then, then he has a choice of three different spaces to work in. Hmm.
2: You know, we didn't mention Studio One at Sunset at all. Do you mind if we just talk a little bit about that?
7: Um, actually, all three studios at Sunset um, I have worked on at one time or another. Um, Studio One was the original room uh, that I believe was a battery manufacturing facility. The actual live room is a low low ceiling rectangular room, the floor slopes, um, and that room was redone by architect Jack Edwards and I. And we, I think, did a redo of the control room at the same time. Uh, And at that time, that's an interesting one because the control room, they wanted a good control room and the control room was simply too small. The old control rooms were literally booths. And when stereo came in and you wanted clients sitting in the room, then we had to get into bigger rooms. So the control room was actually enlarged physically. The studio uh, was done with moderately live acoustics, um, variable acoustics, variable acoustics. Uh, one of the first rooms that I did uh, a big diffuser wall of my own design and then uh, with drapes that could be drawn in front of it. Um, then the big room at Sunset was Studio Two. That Control room was redone when quad came in, uh, redone as best we could to make it suitable for quad. Um, And interestingly enough, quad came and went uh, over a matter of about three months, and uh, the control room, the basic control room construction has not changed. It's one of those old-fashioned magic rooms that people like to work in, so it has not been changed. Studio 3 at sunset was built from the ground up, and that's a moderately live, uh, live recording space, fairly high ceiling, some variable acoustics, but the control room then was built to deliberately maintain the geometry that we'd already established in the other two rooms.
1: All right. So that was um, George uh, talking about his kind of his like philosophy on redesign and and how he approaches it, which I think is just really fascinating to hear all these different opinions of um, these great designers and engineers and, and uh, you know, what their focus is on and maybe what they, how they like to shift it and change it and uh, and make sure that they're designing it for the musician and not just for the engineers, which I think is an interesting theory.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we have one more studio designer um, to go on this podcast, and that's my good old pal Jimmy Nutt down there in Sheffield, Alabama, which is right next to Muscle Shoals, where he actually grew up and uh, got a job as a young kid at – Fame Studios, very famous. Um, if You may have seen the documentary about that studio in Muscle Shoals uh, with uh, Rick Hall. He worked with Rick Hall for many years and really came up with the idea of creating his own studio in the town right next to it. And what was really fun about uh, hanging out with Jimmy is um, just his, his love of his job. He just absolutely loves creating that space. Providing that space where artists can come in and express themselves musically. And he really takes that very seriously. He um, has put a lot of thought and time into the creation of his studio, which we're going to say it is the Nut House <laughs> there in Alabama. And uh, love the name. But I love the concept behind it. It is a little nutty. That's what's really <laughs> fun about it is, you know, talk about vibe. This place has got the vibe, you know, from the uh, refrigerator with colas that you can grab and the couch you can lounge on to a very lovely space uh, where multiple instruments can uh, set up and and be very comfortable, uh, a wonderful um engineer booth that um, is not crammed like so many of them are. He did. He just really put a lot of thought into it. My favorite part about this was how he came up with the space. He was driving around town. He saw a building for lease. He pulled over and realized it used to be a bank. And at first thought, ah, I don't know about this. used to be a bank, went in and loved it. It loved the space and took full advantage of everything that was already there to the point where the vocal booth is actually in the vault, which <laughs> is fantastic. So I'm really happy that we can include Jimmy's story here because a uh, fantastic guy with a lot of passion for studio design for sure.
0: So here is Jimmy Nutt talking about the creation of the Nuthouse. House. <laughs>
8: When I first moved here, worked for Fame for about three or four years, you know, the publishing business is tough, it's an up-and-down business, and the publishing business for them had kind of dipped a little bit and they had to kind of, you know, let some folks go, and so um, I was one of those folks, and I was kind of put in a situation where, you know, I started this career, I love it, I don't want to turn back. And so the logical thing to do was for me to put a studio on my house. I'd started collecting a few pieces of gear and um, started developing some clients, some folks that I'd done a good job for. Um, And the interesting thing about my path, my career path so far, is it's been very organic. You know, Um, it's just been you do a good job for this person, this person hears it, they give you a call, you know, and it's just been that. and so somehow I had enough clients already that I stayed busy at my house for a year or two um, and did a few records and paid the bills somehow. I don't know how. And um, and then, you know, like I said, I went back to fame. Uh, Rick Hall called me and wanted me to come and work directly for him. So I went back to work at fame for Rick this time, not his sons, and did a few things. Didn't work for several reasons. And then I was in a position to say, okay, I've been out on my own at my house with a studio. I don't want to have a studio in my house anymore. I want to get a proper space. And so I leased, leased a building and, and, uh, bought some more equipment. I bought a 24 track, 2 inch machine at that time, which I still have and use occasionally. And, uh, had, had again been collecting gear, you know, just kind of piece here, piece there. And, um, and then started I had done a I think I'd done a Jason Isbell record or two at that time. I'd worked on a Russell Smith album. A friend of mine um got me on some Jimmy Buffett albums. <coughs> and so I'd started developing a little bit of name for myself and just was continually building my client list. And so it's just it's just been that way, you know, ever since I've moved here. It's strange. Hmm, that's you know, wild. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I, I but um
2: so, how did the name
8: come about? Well, my my last name is Nut, you know, and um, I did not want to name my studio the Nut House. Uh, my wife talked me into it. You know, as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I found a list of of names that I, you know, was tossing around at the time. They were all terrible, but but uh, she was adamant that I called it the Nut House, and I'm glad I did. You know, it's it's pretty memorable, I guess, and and you know, certainly. Um, certainly works for you know being a studio working with musicians and (laughs) all the crazy people that we know and love so
2: right and musicians are just the type of people to be proud to say i'm going to the yeah
8: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely so you know that's cool it is what it is
2: and so tell me a little bit about moving over to this building
8: okay yeah i um like I said I had been leasing a space uh, in downtown Sheffield, just right across the street here, and it was a decent space, but I it wasn't the, spa- the space, you know. And I wanted to own my own building. Um, one of the big advantages to living in this part of the country is that real estate is is fairly cheap. You know, it's a, it's affordable. You can you can buy a building like this. Downtown Sheffield was. Um, you know, almost a ghost town at that time. I mean, it's, it's really being revived as of the last year or two. A lot of the buildings have been remodeled and there's, there's resurgence going on. But at that time, this particular building had been sitting empty for over a year and had a for sale sign out front. I'd driven by it several times, just kind of wondering, and that's, that's an old bank. I mean, that would be a great studio. And so. Finally got to talking to the real estate agent, working some things out, and ended up buying the building and um, uh, I was not able to hire an acoustic engineer or anything like that. I had built a studio in my bedroom at home I'd built a studio at a building that I'd leased and I'd read some books and so I had a great carpenter um, I basically for these booths, I would just lay two by fours on the floor and say, "I want the walls to be like this and he would build it you know. And so that's what we did. We spent six months remodeling this place. Um, I still had my other studio going. And um, and then we just, you know, opened and went right to work, you know.
2: So, so. you did the acoustic design yourself?
8: Yeah. Wow, that's yep. fantastic. I sure did, yeah. It's
2: uh, a nice live room.
8: Yeah, I left it live. I didn't, I like to cut drums in a big live room. The booths are, are treated and fairly dead. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to leave it live, you know, um, so it's worked well so far you know i'm happy with it what
2: do you think the key element of the studio as far as getting the sound that you want
8: well that's an interesting question um you know again i like cutting drums in a live room Um, i like room mics Um, i like for the musicians to be able to see see each other uh, which they can for the most part. The keyboard player, unfortunately, sometimes gets put off in the in another room, or the piano player does. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just techniques and things I've developed over the years that I know works, and I can achieve a certain sound by doing this particular set of, of techniques, you know. And um, so, I mean, certainly the room has a sound. Um, but, but I think it also is, you know, the musician, the song, the day, the temperature, whatever, you know, I mean, it's variable, the mood. Yeah. So.
2: And the vault is behind you.
8: Yeah. Yeah. What do you use that for? Well, um, it, it, it. wasn't really usable until about a year and a half ago. Finally got around to kind of treating the inside of it. It was just a concrete block room, you know. Um, but finally went in, we just kind of framed it out and put some, you know, uh, Owens Corning and rock wool and stuff behind the walls and put some, actually actually, what we did in there was I had a lot of leftover materials, some cedar, some cork, some this and that, and we just kind of put it on the walls, you know. Um, so it's mainly uh, an amp room, you know, We'll put an amp in there and um, mic it up, and the guitar player can still be out on the floor. So that's mainly what it's used for. I mean, I had a fiddle player in there the other day; it worked fine. It's not, by any means, soundproof. I've got to, still got to do some work on the door. Uh, we just right now are running chords you know, through the door. So, but uh, it works, you know. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's got a great vibe in here.
8: Thank you. You know. Everybody says that, and I think that has a lot. My wife helped design the place. She really picked out a lot of the colors and had to talk me into this carpet and things like that. And, and it, it, it does. I, 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 I give her credit for a lot of that, for sure. Yeah.
2: You know, most studios have a, a, a wood square. Yep. Tell me the significance of that.
8: Well, I mean, this was something that I sort of copied from fame. They have kind of a, a small, you know, wood square in the middle rectangle with carpet around. But, I mean, it's essentially, you know, uh, you have... Uh, a hard surface that's totally reflective, and then you have carpet around it, which is somewhat absorptive. So, you know, you have that mix of elements in the room. I mean, you can move the drums and set them out on the hard floor, or you can have them on the carpet. It just gives you a lot, a lot more options, you know. Um, Abbey Road, you know, one of my favorite studios ever. I mean, they basically have just a, a hardwood floor like this, kind of a, almost like a herringbone pattern. But, um, so, I think if you treat the other surfaces, you can have a hard floor. You know you wouldn't want to just have hard surfaces everywhere, but but it's uh, I like to have the the mix of elements, you know, some some absorptive, some reflective.
1: So that concludes our fantastic uh, episode today on studio design. And um it was so much fun to go through this and listen to all these interviews, and it was really hard to like pinpoint down what I wanted. You know, kind of condense all of this fantastic storytelling and uh, information into this episode. Uh, but I just wanted to recap. We had them talking. We had people talking about uh, building studios in a post office, a bank, a truck. You could build it anywhere, basically, <laughs> is what we've learned. Uh, yes. And now I think we should all say what we where we would want a studio to be built if we could get a custom made studio. I. <laughs> so- I go. think I'm just going to go in a weird direction here and say tree house. Oh, nice. That could be yeah. fun. I like it. I think that would be a fun one. What about like- you, Dan? Oh, well me,
2: I think the zoo would be fantastic. <laughs> I mean, you know, that <laughs> concept of pet sounds, the album didn't have as many <laughs> sounds of animals as you probably could incorporate the early days of jazz actually had a band uh, called the original Dixieland jazz band. Oh, how did I pull that out of my head? (laughs) Um, And they incorporated like um, chickens and cows and stuff like that. And I really do think it's been a hundred years. I think that trend should come back again. I think we have to have more Okapi in popular music. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm gonna say I think this has already been done. Like I think someone's built a studio here before, but I'm gonna say like a fallout shelter. Like oh. maybe not one that's active, but <laughs> imagine how perfect you could get the sound down there. Like mm-hmm. there's no outside noise. There might not be any air, so that could be a problem. But <laughs> Yeah, they usually they usually have like some sort of circulation
1: in there. And yeah. really you could be
0: really focused too, like no distractions. That's what I'm saying. Everything yeah. would be perfect. I mean you'd have to have some good engineers and some good musicians too, but I think that would be I good. I like it. I
1: like that.
0: The yeah. no windows thing might get you after a while though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Breaks up to the real world up, upstairs. It's awesome.
0: Very cool.
2: Well, I, I would like to add my two cents to just say uh, a sincere appreciation and thank you of gratitude to all those people who helped us, get the interviews that we shared with you today. You know, it really does take a village to create this uh, archive. And every day I do another interview, I'm more and more grateful to the people who sacrifice time and effort um, to help us. And there's uh, no doubt that today's episode represents a dozen or more people who did exactly that. So thank you very much to all those who have helped us over the years with this collection.
0: And just a reminder, a final reminder, um, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, we do have a full video version featuring all video from the interviews that we talked about today. You can head to nam.org library podcast to see all of those episodes. Um, but thank you so much for listening or watching today. We will be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode of the Music History Project. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library@nam.org.